Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply stock have too high a price buy a slice trade fractional shares of your favorite u.s stocks and etfs in any dollar amount you choose with zero commissions online get started at fidelity.com slash stocks by the slice fractional share quantities can be entered to three decimal places if the value of the order is at least one cent dollar-based trades can be entered to two decimal places sell orders are subject to an activity assessment fee from one cent to three cents per one thousand dollars of principal fidelity brokerage services llc member nyse sipc oh hi it's your internet uncle ali ward back with facts and science and stories and the second ever episode of smologies which is a new spin-off of quick distilled ologies episodes that we've shrunk down and de-filthed so you can listen in a classroom or on a road trip with your in-laws. I don't know what your in-laws' vibes are, but maybe you need a clean version. Also, if you want the full version of this episode, it's linked in the show notes, and there are also bleeped full versions available, but smologies are small, and they'll show up right in this feed every other Thursday. Now, as usual, regular brand-new full-length episodes of Ologies come out on Tuesdays. We're just launching this double on a Tuesday because I got married to your pod mom, Jarrett Sleeper, last Saturday, and I'm taking this week off to go see family in Montana, my first vacation in nine years. I'm very excited. Okay, this intro's already too long. Let's get to fossils, dino digs, brontosauruses, titanosauri, flimflam, Jurassic Park. What does a dinosaur taste like? Museum secrets and more in this episode two of Smologies with paleontologist Michael Habib. You study movement of animals, and that's kind of how you got into paleontology. What is, is paleontology only about fossils, or is it just about living things of that era? So paleontology, it doesn't necessarily have to be about fossils, but it historically it kind of was. It was considered to be the study of fossils, essentially, although it more literally is just the study of life in the past. And you mostly do that through, through fossils. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm one of those paleontologists who does play of fossils. Before we go much further, let's define super quick what a fossil actually is. I didn't know this until just now. Fossils are any trace or remains like a cast or an impression or a substitution with rock or even the thing itself of something that was once alive. They have to be at least 10,000 years old to be considered a fossil. I don't know what they're called if they're younger than that, to be honest. And the word fossil comes from the Latin for obtained by digging, which is like kind of adorable. I just picture people digging around being like, I obtained this by digging. It's a fossil. What amount of time do you spend in the field as a paleontologist and how much of that is back in a lab or looking at spreadsheets or measuring uh, fossil densities and stuff? So... In terms of the amount of time, like how much of the year I'm in the field, it's a, uh, a good chunk of the summer. But that's uh, that's usually when I do all my field work. So basically July and August, a good 
bit of it. I'll be in the field. Um, mostly New Mexico. Was that a titanosaur? That's the titanosaur project. Yeah. Can you can you reveal what you're working on with that? Sure. Sure. Obviously, you excavate basically whatever you find. It's not like you went out there going, we're going to find a titanosaur. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, we kind of went out there going, I really kind of hope we don't find a titanosaur. Because, really? Well, I mean, not not we were being right. glib about it, which is what makes it funny. But like there was a part of us that was like, I really hope we don't find things super huge because then we're going to feel you know, compelled to excavate it and it's going to take forever. <laughs> oh, no. And of course, what we found was two individuals of the group that includes the largest land animals of all time. In fact, one of our one of our specimens may be the largest dinosaur from North America. That's huge. Maybe. Literally. Yeah. So it's just, I mean, these, you know, these are animals that a mid-sized titanosaur is like 30 tons plus. Oh my god. And a big one's like 60 tons plus. How many feet? The big guys you're looking at a hundred feet-ish. Wow. How many times bigger than an elephant are these guys? Big okay. uh, Big bull African elephant, mm-hmm. uh, which would be the largest living land animal. Mm-hmm. I think the record is like 6.2 tons or something oh, like that. Oh, really? But the average is more like five and change. Okay. So if a big titanosaur is regularly hitting 60, that's 12 what? times. So these titanosaurs are like if 12 elephants stacked under one giant overcoat and pretended to be a person. So his work is kind of a big deal in every way possible. Who gets to name it? Well, that depends. We don't know whether or not we will be naming it because we don't know if it's a new species yet or not. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is a type of titanosaur from North America that is named, just one, which is interesting because the rest of the world, there's a ton of these things. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're they're like one of the hot groups of dinosaurs to work on these days. Like we went from not knowing much about them 20 years ago to suddenly this has been this explosion. So sauropods are those really long-necked, kind of round-bellied, plant-munching cuties. Even if you don't get to name the species, you get to actually be like, this one's Gary or whatever, Oh, right? sure. So, the, yeah, so the, you get nicknames. So, yeah, so the naming process. So if this ends up being a new species, we will give a new technical name in a publication, and I'll be myself and my colleagues and we'll name it. But in terms of nicknames, in terms of nicknames, those kind of just happen organically. Okay. And our two titanosaurs actually have nicknames. Oh, what are uh, they? They are Daisy and Duke. Ah, look at that. And uh, it's usually the students that end up naming these things. Where do they come uh, so. up with Daisy and Dukes? It's not, it has nothing to do with jean shorts, does it? Like Daisy Dukes? Daisy Dukes, for those unfamiliar, are a type of micro pant fashioned from truncated denim trousers. They are beneficial in warm climates. So when might Daisy and Duke make their museum debut? Please put shorts on them. Here's the deal with museums. It's actually like the shoe department at JCPenney. What you see on the floor is a representative fraction of what they got in the back. So you may see a cool dinosaur or like a weird old knife or a clay jug, but the museum has literally millions of specimens on site archived for research. The LA County Natural History Museum, for example, has 35 million artifacts in storage. How much money does it cost to dig up a dinosaur? This is the most fun game I've ever played. Let's let's, let's have fun with this. How long, how much do you think a field season for us costs? Oh gosh, well, it depends on if you have interns. We have a combination of paid employees from the museum as well as volunteers. Okay. Let's just, but let's just look at just the field season. Let's assume that salaries for the mu- for the museum employees is just part of their yearly okay. work and everything. So just the additional money for the supplies, the trucks, oh, to God. get people out there, to feed them, keep them safe, make the jackets, get transport the specimens. I would say eight hundred thousand dollars, four million dollars, a billion dollars. <laughs> I Less don't know. than ten thousand a year. You're kidding me. No. 
Are you kidding me? So uh, you can't, you could buy a Toyota Camry used or a dinosaur expedition? That's right. What kind of a world is this? <laughs> why haven't, why haven't we all done this? Side note, I got married last weekend and I can tell you, should have folded it in with a dig. But yes, that's one of my favorite ologies facts maybe ever. Oh, speaking of faves. So do you have a favorite dinosaur? Do I have a favorite dinosaur? Yes, I have a couple of favorite dinosaurs, okay. depending on what kind of favoritism right. one has in mind. The one that like really has a place in your heart, like you know which one it is. There's one that you really like the most. Sure. So growing up, so the one that makes me think, ah, childhood, is this thing Deinonychus, okay. which is very similar to Velociraptor of Jurassic Park fame. Mm -hmm. uh, incidentally, the real Velociraptor was about coyote-sized and feathered, <gasps> not giant and scaly. Dino enthusiasts love to note that the velociraptors in Jurassic Park were not historically accurate. Deinonychus, which means terrible claw, was much closer to what was portrayed as a velociraptor. And I thought this was just someone sleeping on the job. But the confusion is said to have originated from Deinonychus originally being labeled as a subspecies of velociraptors. Either way, these things should have had feathers. So imagine a giant clawed bird wanting to murder you. That's upsetting. It's not as upsetting to some people, though, as a movie getting facts wrong. Uh, some of them are. I've seen some people get really upset about it. I yeah. just, I don't get that upset about it. But yeah, I mean, they're, it's essentially, they're essentially fantasy creatures. But Deinonychus was particularly interest, was particularly important historically because it was one of the first uh, dinosaurs that was specifically used in some of the, what was, uh, some of the original hypotheses about the origins of birds, and specifically being dinosaurs. So. Really? By the way, all birds are technically dinosaurs. And that may be a thing that you've accepted and you've processed in your heart or mind, but it still weirds me out. Now, these days, I might very well say and have said that my favorite might be Chongoraptor. Chongoraptor. Now, whew, what a weird thing. First off, it's C-H-A-N-G-Y-U, raptor. You find it, Google it, it took me a while. So this was a non-bird flying dinosaur. It has four wings, four wings and a tail that was like a foot long, big claws and teeth. Which is not something you hear a lot about. No. Now, Michael was on the team that first analyzed and published the paper naming this a new species. So, you know. So that one has a special place in my heart for that reason. Now, a little background on this. A paleontologist was trolling some amber markets in Myanmar and saw this apricot-sized piece of plant resin for sale as like a jewelry piece, whatever. The seller said there was like maybe a plant stuck in it. Yeah, no. It was actually a whole baby dinosaur tail, feathered. Like the best episode of Antiques Roadshow ever. They named it Eva. Eva is 99 million years old and probably got her tail stuck in tree sap and died there, which is currently making me want to cry. So RIP, little feathered buddy. And thank you for not ending up as a random chunky pendant. That's, that's, a, that's a really neat find. It is the beginning of what'll probably, what you, you'll, you'll be seeing more, more things like that okay. in the future. Are we going to be cloning anything? No, you're not going to be cloning anything from this because while it while it more or less looks exactly like it just was preserved yesterday because the soft tissue is is there. Wow. That doesn't mean that the molecular structure is is completely unaltered. And DNA has a reasonably short half-life, so you would just get gobbledygook out. Like you could probably get DNA, but not it wouldn't mean anything. Okay. Um, DNA doesn't have to break down much, and it would be very broken down in the stuff. You might not even get any, but you might be able to get a small amount, but it wouldn't matter. D DNA becomes incomprehensible very quickly because it only has a four-letter alphabet. Mm -hmm. 
So if you only have four letters in your alphabet, your words, if you will, have to be very lengthy. Right. So if you break them even a few times, it means nothing. So we can't bloop, 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 resurrect the brontosaurus with fragments of a broken code. But wait, what is going on with the brontosaurus? What's the hot goss on uh, brontosaurus? On brontosaurus. So, so the, the, the short answer is brontosaurus is a valid name again. The original material that was named Brontosaurus was then later found to have been comprised of multiple animals of different species. Whoops. And so it was decided that Brontosaurus was not a valid name because, well, it's all known stuff. You can't combine them and say it's a new animal. Right. Researchers recently went through that material again with better knowledge, you know, more data than we now have because over time you get better and better knowledge of what's out there, they cross-compared a bunch of stuff. And what they found was that, yes, a lot of that material was already known species, but some of it didn't match anything and therefore was, in fact, new. Dope. And and that means the original name holds. That's some good breaking news on the brontosaurus front. Yes. This is why it's always a good idea to ask smart people seemingly silly questions. Right now, the more the merrier. Also, before we get to your questions, we will be donating to a related charity. And this week, it's going to the Natural History Museum of L.A. County, one of my favorite places in the world. Definitely stop in and wander next time you're near downtown. So a donation was made possible by some sponsors of the show. KiwiCo. You know I love KiwiCo because making stuff and learning while you do it, the best way. And KiwiCo is great. They deliver seriously fun learning for kids of all ages. They have these hands-on projects and activities. And each month, kids receive crates that are engaging and that introduce them to things like science and technology or concepts and art. And I love that all the things you need are in there. So you're not going to be running out to the store to get pipe cleaners. You're not going to run out of glue or something. And KiwiCo tests these crates with professionals and with kids to make them the best they can be. There's so many different projects depending on what your kiddo's interested in, what age or grade level they're at. You can discover the science of magic. You can engineer a domino machine. These make great gifts. I have given these to so many kids. And I also like that there's no commitment, so you can pause or cancel crates anytime. So redefine learning with play. You can explore projects that build confidence and problem-solving skills with KiwiCo. Get 50% off your first month on any crate line at kiwico.com with the promo code ologies. So that's 50% off your first month at kiwico.com, promo code ologies. They're going to love it. Did you know that Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day alive and thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. Available 24-7, you can talk to a plant expert about your soil type, your landscape design, and they curate thousands of plants. They got climates, they got locations. I am stoked about this because I've wanted a fig tree for so long and I'm like, I don't know where to get the fig tree. I'm not quite sure where to plant it in the yard. And I went to the Fast Growing Trees website and I was like, boom, I'm in zone 10. This fig tree would work well for me. Done. And right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code ologies at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code ologies at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code ologies. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. 
Okay, so a little fun fact about how we make the show. So right before it gets published, I do like the third pass on the edit in case I want to tweak anything before it goes out. And I always do laundry during that time because I need to listen to the show as if I were a listener who's doing something else while you enjoy facts about capybara butts. And I would like to thank EarthBreeze for making that whole situation more pleasant. So EarthBreeze has these eco sheets that we use that I love. They're not a liquid or a powder. They're not a capsule. They look like a dryer sheet, but it's this ultra concentrated laundry detergent. So I don't have to spill a bunch of soap all over my hands and pants, which happens every time I have that giant heavy laundry jug. There's no measuring. There's no mess. There's no wasteful plastic jug, which makes me feel good about myself. And we all need that. It works on everyday stains and odors. And it's just one more step to making laundry day easier. So go wash your clothes, but make it easier with EarthBreeze. And right now, Ologies listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. So go to earthbreeze.com slash ologies. That's earthbreeze.com slash ologies for 40% off your subscription. I use it while I edit this. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Oh? Okay, your listener questions. I have some rapid-fire questions for you from Let's listeners. David wants to know, any new thoughts on what color dinosaurs were? Any new thoughts on what color dinosaurs were? It depends on how new um, you're looking at, but within the last handful of years, yes. There was a significant breakthrough in, it's still a little bit controversial, but seems to be accurate, in looking at the impressions of feathers in particular, because feathers store their pigments, some of their pigments, in these little kind of little capsules, basically, mm -hmm. that uh, do preserve in some of these fossils, some of these really well-preserved fossils. You need a microscope to see them, but you, they are there. They're called melanosomes, and they store melanin, mm -hmm. uh, or melanins, I should say, which is a family of different pigments. And of course, the original pigment isn't in them anymore, but the shape and size of the melanosome tells you what kind of melanin it had in ah. it. So they can use the microscopy, uh, advanced microscopy and imaging techniques to on, on those feathers to determine where certain melanins were located. Ooh, what is microscopy? It's just looking at things with a microscope. Okay. That means they can get some of the blacks, grays, dark browns, and reddish browns, but they can't get other colors. Mm -hmm. So we have some idea that some of these things at least had bold patterns, but we don't know how bold the colors were. Interesting. Okay. Tony wants to know, if dinosaurs are the ancestors of modern birds, does that mean that dinosaurs tasted like chicken? Uh, they probably did taste like chicken. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, the way of putting it is birds are just weird dinosaurs. Yeah. And uh, and they probably did. I mean, keep in mind, the, uh, the closest living relatives of birds are crocodilians. And if you've ever had alligator, it tastes a little bit like chicken too. So there you go. So there's... You know, what we call a phylogenetic bracket in uh, of of tastiness there in uh, <laughs> technical about it and yeah so I imagine it would taste pretty much pretty much like chicken your typical dinosaur would probably be mostly more dark meat than white meat because um, they more hemoglobin for for moving uh sort of it's very close with so what turns the, the dark meat dark is something called myoglobin which okay. is used for storing oxygen in muscle. And that's used particularly in what we call aerobic muscle. So muscle that uses a lot of oxygen, it's high endurance muscle. So it's this oxygen storing protein, myoglobin, 
that makes dark meat dark, which is why legs, which move around more, are dark meat. And chicken breast, which just sits there not flapping much, is white. So good luck ever looking at a roasted dinosaur the same. Adam has a question. How do you know when to switch brushes when you're digging out a fossil? How do you know when to switch brushes when the one you currently have is unusable? And then you just, do you have to get the finer and finer brushes when you're getting tiny grains of sand off? Uh, you don't usually have to reduce the brush size much, maybe a little bit. It's more things like chisel, anything sharp, chisel sizes, things like that. As you could, if you're doing some more detailed work, you have to go to a smaller tool. Brushes, uh, any kind of broad, soft paintbrush will kind of do. Uh, certain bristle types are better than others, but you know, it's you know, it's not you're not like it's not like painting where you're going out to detail work. You just right. you're not taking off each individual grain of sand. You just you have some loose stuff and then you brush it out of the way, and then you have some more loose stuff and you brush it out of the way. The key thing is to not damage the fossil. I I always picture you guys going down to like a watercolor, two hairs on the brush, like delicately. It's good to know that you guys no. are just like no, just get the dust off. I've used dental tools to etch stuff around a fossil before. That seems fun. It is for a while, and then it starts to become tedious, but it's mostly fun. Yeah, I honestly love it. But yeah, we don't go to tiny brushes. TJ wants to know how many of the fossils on display at museums are actually replicas or casts. Right, right. So it depends on what museum you're at, and it, all, it depends in a large part on what age the museum is, or the exhibit is in particular, when it was built. If it's a really old exhibit, say, so you go, say it hasn't been changed since the 1920s, it's likely mostly original material. Oh. Uh, because during that time, they didn't do as much casting. They didn't mind drilling through some of these things to put them on exhibit. And then as you got into the mid to late 20th century, that fell out of favor because they didn't want to put holes in the research specimen. But now, if it's a really recent exhibit, ironically enough, you're going to see more original stuff on display again because we have better armatures now, what we call cradle armatures, Armatures are the metal cradles that hold the bones in place externally. And that lets you remove pieces for research and put them back, do whatever. Now, what percentage of each of those specimens original is a whole nother ball game. You very rarely find a complete skeleton. So yeah. there's a few different ways of, of ending up with a complete skeleton for exhibit. One is you create a composite from multiple originals of the same species that are all similar enough in age and size that it'll more or less work as an average individual. So what you're displaying isn't a single individual ever lived, but it's sort of an average of four or five individuals that were very similar. So it's like a frankensaur? It's like a frankensaur. Okay. Yeah. And then if the thing's really incomplete, and this happens quite often, like you, you found it, you, know, you have enough to know what it is, you have enough to know it's a, a new animal, what have you, but you only have, say, 15% of the, of the skeleton, you will then fill in the rest of casts but the museums are trying their best. Yeah. So sometimes you don't have all the parts and pieces to a dead dino that you need. But that's why scientists and artists build it out for us. And that's why we love them. Well, what's your favorite thing about the job? Oh, uh, that one's hard because just because the job actually is super fun. I love field work. I love opening drawers in new museums and the collections when I go places to, you know, travel to do research. I really do enjoy teaching. A uh, friend's dad at a, a social gathering, Kyoto Minis, decided he'd give me a little bit of a hard time. And he goes, so you're you're an academic, right? I'm like, yeah. Hmm. What do you actually make? Isn't like, what do you produce? What do you make? Like, like, what do you make? And I took a quick second and said, I make doctors. Face. <laughs> 
And thank you, Dr. Michael Habib, for teaching us so much about dinosaurs and paintbrushes and mosquito bites and following your passions into a pit of dusty bones. And thank you to everyone who helped make this episode. Full credits are in the show notes along with Dr. Michael Habib's handles to follow. We are at Ologies, and I'm at Allie Ward with one L. More info is at AllieWard.com slash And one last thing before I go, some advice from old dad ward. You know, sometimes it can be scary to start a project, but starting is always the very hardest part. It's all easier once you start. So be strong, start the thing, you're gonna do great. Okay, bye-bye. I'll use smart smallogites. Smallogites.